this week on the Back Table Podcast. My idea is please, please just listen carefully to what your patient's saying, what their story is, and then use your wonderful skills that people are just learning exist these days that I think can be so, so very helpful to so many patients that don't know about it yet, right? The same boat we're in with pelvic PT listen to their story, create that team, really make the team that we were talking about. That could be sex therapy, acupuncturists, it could be massage therapists, OBGYN, dermatologists, GI. Like these are all my team and I can't imagine treating these patients without that team. And I think interventional radiologists are a huge, huge part of that team. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. BD provides clinical education and training through the BD Peripheral Intervention Advanced Healthcare Providers courses. The BD Advanced team offers programs on advanced endovascular management of AV access, emerging techniques in the management of CLTI and venous disease, as well as many different resident programs and peer-to-peer opportunities. Contact your local BD representatives to learn more or visit the BD Advance webpage. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti. I'm coming to you from Tacoma, Washington today. And today I have the pleasure of introducing our guest, Ingrid Harm Hernandez. She is a pelvic floor physical therapist and the co-director and mentor for Duke University's Women's Health Physical Therapy Residency Program. Our topic today is pelvic venous disease and the interplay with physical therapy. So Ingrid, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation. Well, you were previously on an episode of Backtable for the Backtable GYN channel, and you went pretty in-depth about the role of physical therapy in evaluation for pelvic pain. So let me ask you, what has been your relationship with interventional radiologists in your treatment of pelvic pain and pelvic floor PT? It would go two ways. So one is that in the beginning, actually earlier in my career, it really wasn't known. And I think, you know, you're kind of in the same boat that pelvic PTs are, is not a lot of people know what we do. So it's really hard for people to get referred and then get treatment. Absolutely. So I would say in the beginning, it was a little of trying to figure out what is going on with this patient that they're not responding the way they normally would to a musculoskeletal issue. So when we did all the work we needed to do, the patient was compliant. We really working together as a team or I pulled other specialists in, there still seemed to be something missing. And that's where I started to look into what is this with pelvic congestion syndrome? What is going on? you know, where maybe it's a pudendal nerve problem, but the normal stuff we do is is not helping it. And I think that's where I kind of started stepping out of my silo and saying, I need to look at something else and starting to talk to interventional radiologists 
and understanding better what they could do. And I think it was slowly but surely happening the other way around at Duke that they were realizing a little bit, oh, wait a minute, pelvic PT can really help our patients when we might be doing a great job getting rid of the actual venous issue, but the musculoskeletal system is still pretty angry and still needs to be addressed. So I think that's why I'm saying it went both ways and I see lots of luck, lots of progress that way. And I really hope it can just balloon to the point where, you know, we're being more of that interdisciplinary care model where everybody's working together and everybody's getting the patient better. And these things are being recognized much, much earlier than they are now. Well, can you think of any patients early on that you saw that you treated all of their musculoskeletal issues? You felt like you've done the full gamut of what you could, but they still weren't getting better. Describe to me how you even found out that pelvic venous disease was an issue um, and how you were first connected with interventional radiology. Yeah, I would say it was actually a, a woman who you would think not normal for either nutcracker syndrome or any of the, the pelvic congestion syndromes that we think of. So she was in her 80s and she responded well up to a point with the pelvic PT. So in other words, what happened is her pain levels were going down. She was getting better. She, functionally, she was doing more but she still had this return of symptoms around four or five o'clock every day. And it was a pattern that we just could not completely get rid of. And we tried everything. I, I mean, practically short of standing on her head or maybe even doing that, we could not get rid of those symptoms. So I had to kind of look into it. I think I had to ask a lot of questions of other doctors at Duke. And it took a while. I don't think anybody really had that answer. And then suddenly there was a little bit more coming out on just pelvic congestion syndrome and what it really was. And it was even confusing when I first started reading about it, but what truly does that mean, right? And I wish I had that knowledge base much earlier because I think it would have been great to be able to say that patient, you know what, I've got the answer for you. If we're not getting somewhere and these symptoms are returning later in the evening when that venous system really is a chance to be inflamed and upset and get the nerves upset, I wish I had known that much earlier, but it's one of those things I think that we gain that knowledge, we grow in our own profession by learning from other professionals. And I think that's what kind of stands out in my mind that that really was a turning point for me that I need to reach out even further than my standard, whether it's OBGYN or urogynecology or acupuncture or sex therapist. Those are all the things I deal with. And interventional radiology was a brand new thing for me to deal with. And it was so nice to see that there was another answer out there. So we are kind of classically taught in treating patients with pelvic venous disease or pelvic congestion syndrome that some of the symptoms that would lead us towards that diagnosis are pain getting worse later in the day, worse withstanding, multiparous women, things like that. But in your experience, have you noticed other either telltale signs or symptoms that make you think, oh, I, I think this might be pelvic venous disease and I'm going to refer her to an IR or a vascular surgeon? Yeah, I think the symptoms you just mentioned are absolutely on target. But I would also say for a lot of my women, they had kind of a feeling of heaviness in their pelvic floor itself, pressure on the pelvic floor, almost like a prolapse kind of sensation, pressure into the leg, primarily the left leg. So the symptoms were more prevalent on the left side than the right side. Those are some things that I saw that started to form patterns for me that I didn't even know was a pattern until I really looked back at it. And then some of these ladies, after having intercourse, they'll have pain. It's not necessarily 
during intercourse, it's afterwards. And I think what happens is the musculoskeletal system is already upset. And then when they have sex, it becomes even more upset. And that stays for a while. And then the other category that I would say, I really kind of had to think a little bit about this one is that, you know, those who are sent to me for pudendal neuralgia, it's a tough diagnosis to treat, but they'll get better with different treatments that we do. But when there's pelvic congestion or venous syndrome involved, it's really hard to get it better because the the venous system is continually putting that pressure on the nerve and the nerve itself gets irritated. And before we know, you've got this very, very aggravated and inflamed condition going on. So that in itself, I think, makes it very hard to treat. And the very last thing I'll say is I think if you've got a person who's older, so we think of these congestion syndromes as pregnancy, postpartum, all that, if you've got a woman who's in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, don't ignore it. Do not ignore it because not only do they have the syndrome and have they had it for a long time, their system, their musculoskeletal system is so upset that they may not respond immediately like you'd expect after a surgical or a radiology intervention, I'll call it, of some sort. They may not respond because that system is so upset that it needs pelvic PT and other types of, of treatments to get better. That's a really good point. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling cycle, I guess. What am I trying to say? It's kind of like it's the chicken or the egg. Like, is it the pudendal nerve pain that then causes increased inflammation in the vessels, which then further inflames the pudendal nerve and so and so forth? But you probably are able to evaluate for all of that. Okay, so in your last podcast, you really explained what you did during pelvic PT. And I think that is like a huge black box for definitely a lot of physicians, and definitely for a lot of interventional radiologists. So can you walk me through kind of what an initial visit with a pelvic PT looks like? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great question because it really is, we call it the great black hole because people, A, don't know what's going on, and B, the patient is very fearful of going. So you could do a great job recommending and referring, but the patient may not go because they don't understand so I think for a physician, a PA to understand what we do is vital because you can explain it and increase the chances of that patient actually going. So in pelvic PT, what we do is we spend a good half an hour on average just getting an amazing subjective history and objective. So what we do is we try to look at all of the patient's kind of background, because they come to us often with many things going on. A lot of our patients aren't just straightforward. They've had different surgeries. They've had injuries. They've had trauma. They've had sexual trauma. I could go on and on about how many different things are involved, you know, in their subjective history. So if we understand that, we know the next step to take. Once we've taken that full history, we may or we may not do an internal exam. And the reason why I say that is, Occasionally, there's a patient who either cannot tolerate, is not ready for, just it's not appropriate to do right away. So I want everybody to understand that although internal assessment and treatment is very important, there are patients where it's not appropriate. So it doesn't mean that every single patient is going to get an internal exam. Um, and that's good for everybody to understand because that's often what they're fearful of. 
The internal exam itself, if we decide that's appropriate, we will look superficially, externally, we'll see what's going on as far as what the tissues look like. If there's a referral that may need to happen to a dermatologist, for example. So we look at the scope of that. Then we go to the very entry vulvar tissue, and then we go a little bit deeper. We look for muscle tension. We look for muscle pain. We look for trigger points. We look for fascial tightness. We do that through the entire musculoskeletal system of that whole pelvic floor. So that includes hip muscles. So the obturator internus, I'll give you as an example, is directly connected to our pelvic floor. So if that patient has an issue with their hip, they often have a problem with the pelvic floor or vice versa. So we have to assess that fully in order to get a good, clear picture. We can also determine if the fascia is tight, for the rectal area, for the bladder area, for the obturator canal. We look at all of that to see if the fascia itself is a problem. Then we look at what we call the perfect scale. So we look at strength, that's the P, power. We look for the ability for endurance, can they hold it? We look at can they repeat those contractions? And then what I would say is I wish it were a perfect R scale with an R on there because we look to see how well they can relax. And the relax is super important because we can say to them, oh, you know, okay, you got tightness here, you've got weakness here. But if we don't look at the ability to relax, which in pelvic congestion is extremely important, we may miss the boat on how we want to prescribe our pelvic floor exercises. And I call them pelvic floor contractions, not Kegels, because there's such a misconception of what a Kegel is, right? I spend four pages in my book going over what a pelvic floor contraction and relaxation is. That's how important I think it is in order to have someone do the right thing for their pelvic floor. So once we determine that, the next stage we do is looking at what can they do with their pelvic floor? What is their life like? So functional ability and basically, do they have three children? Are they retired? Do they have a job that puts them on their feet all day? We combine all that knowledge and then we prescribe the exercise program. We also prescribe hey, does this person need to have some kind of way of changing their bowel movements? Are they are they constipated? Do they strain? We may say, well, what they're taking in in fluid or in their diet is impacting their pain levels, their bladder ability to perform. All these congestive conditions, urgency often becomes a huge problem. When we were talking about symptoms before, urgency is actually another hallmark because once those vessels become irritated around the bladder, the bladder itself increases in urgency. So we may need to teach them skills to reduce urgency and get control over that or leakage. So we look at all of those and we prescribe different functional things, exercises, pelvic floor exercises, and life-changing things, or even you know, how do they improve pain with sex that may be all part of this. So we do this very, very, very comprehensive program that includes all the different types of things that might involve their pelvis. And then we start with conditioning programs. So a lot of these patients are deconditioned. So we may include all sorts of things that have to do with, you know, basic core exercise programs, breathing exercises, anything that helps them get back on their feet is what we may do. That sounds like a pretty comprehensive visit. How long does the first visit typically take? Oh, a good hour. Okay. I mean, and I'm sure the patients are really happy to have somebody to talk to about all this because they probably feel like sometimes they get shuttled through their doctors and their doctors don't really understand what's going on. And having somebody who can understand the ins and outs of each of these different disabilities is probably extremely helpful for the patients. 
sometimes it's the first time that someone really listened to them, and that's very empowering to yeah. them. That it's very important that someone actually just sit and listen. So, as a referring physician, what should we be looking for in a pelvic floor physical therapist to know that they are going to do a good job for our patients? Yeah, that physical therapist should definitely be able to do, you know, as much as I said, we don't always do internal, they should be able to address the internal component. So in other words, they should be able to do that assessment and treatment, whether it's trigger point or fascial release or whatever it may be. That's a definite that they should be able to do. They should be able to also address all these other behavioral changes like I was talking about, because these patients have come sometimes, especially if they're the type of patient I was talking about who's had these conditions for a long time, they've started to have habits that actually make their condition worse, but they don't know that. They don't know they're doing something that is perpetuating or, or worsening their symptoms. So we have to kind of pull them out of that. So this therapist should be able to address many different components, not just the pelvic floor but things that are happening in their abdominal area or, like I said, in the bathroom with their bowel and their bladder. That's a big thing. It's helpful if they can do biofeedback. I, I won't say they have to, but it is helpful Okay, if they can do biofeedback. I Sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't, but I think that's a great adjunct to what we do. And then they should be able to do manual skills, and that is not just internally but externally. Okay, what does uh, biofeedback mean in your profession? So basically, we use a either an internal or superficial sensor. So an internal sensor that can record the muscle activity. And we will use that to determine if first can they find their pelvic floor. So some of these folks literally cannot find the pelvic floor. They don't know how to contract. They don't know how to relax. So we help them find their pelvic floor. We may do up training, which means we train them to strengthen the muscles. We may do down training, which helps them kind of reduce the tension they have in the pelvic floor, which is more common with patients who have pelvic congestion. It's just they tend to do a lot of, I'll call it protective behaviors where they're holding their pelvic floor tight and don't know they're doing that. So we have to teach them to actually relax their pelvic floor before they can strengthen it because they can have a weak and a tight pelvic floor all at the same time. That's quite a misconception, but actually most of my patients were quite weak and quite tight at the same time. That's very confusing, <laughs> I'm sure. Just trying to tease out what to what to fix and what to what to relax and uh, what to tighten. I'm thankful that there are people who are interested in doing that to help. I think a lot of the struggle we have as interventional radiologists is sometimes we'll treat the pelvic venous disease either by embolization or in the settings of uh, non-occlusive May Thurner in stenting, and patients might get a little bit better and then they get worse again, or they get they don't get better at all, or they get totally worse. And so am I right in assuming that you would rather be involved sooner rather than later in their care? Or do you get patients where they've had their interventional radiology treatment and then they're sent to you as like kind of a last resort? Yeah, unfortunately, pelvic PT often is thought of as a last resort, and it should be a first. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because, especially in the in the older population where they've had time to gather those symptoms, I'll call it, and progressively worsen the symptoms, we may take away some of the venous issue, but we're still not taking away the musculoskeletal issue. So if we can jump in 
and you suspect maybe that it's a little bit more than just a venous issue, we may be able to calm the system a bit and then the procedure becomes more effective because their system is more calmed. Now they're ready to go that next step. And then if we need to come back in and jump back in afterwards, we can always do that. But I like to be there in the forefront or at least tag team, you know, go back and forth with, okay, we've got this going on. We've cleared this. Now let's go to the next step and let's do that. So I think if we can be on the same page earlier on, I think our patients will do so much better. Is there something in terms of certifications that doctors should look for when referring to PT? Yes. So there are different types of certifications for pelvic PTs. If you see a WCS after a pelvic PT's name, that's our board certification from our national organization, the APTA, American Physical Therapy Association. They also have some other certifications that are geared a little bit more specific to, let's say, the obstetric population. Then there are some other organizations. Herman and Wallace is one of them that also does a certification. So you have to take a series of courses and then each one of them has their own exams. And at the end, you have to do an exam and a case study to be certified for, through them as well. So there are a number of different certifications out there that you do want to look for. I'll put one small note in there. We are a newer certification and population of therapists. So not everybody has gotten certified. And there are some out there who are awesome at doing this. They just don't have those letters, that alphabet sure. after their name. It is quite expensive. So my thought is a lot of what we talked about before is perfect that you asked that question because if you can call that therapist up, if you go to the APTA website and you look, there's a PT locator and you put in your own zip code and you put, let's say, a radius of 50 miles in there. Okay. If you put that in, you will come up with a bunch of pelvic PTs on there. If you call one that's in your region and they are so excited and can talk to you all about everything I just talked to you about, the internal exam, the biofeedback, the manual skills, the core strengthening, if they can list all of that, then you're going to have a qualified pelvic PT there. And then sometimes through your own group, you'll be able to talk and say, hey, have you referred to pelvic PT? Who have you found has worked well with you? Who has kind of been on the same page with understanding what you do? And I think that's very helpful to finding a qualified pelvic PT. So uh, out in the community setting, how can we increase the synergy between treating endovascular surgeons and interventional radiologists and pelvic PT? I think that's a great question because there are probably a lot of different ways to do it, but each one does require a little bit of time to build that team. So when I was at Duke, the really nice thing was I could easily find so many subspecialties that I could reach out and I'd say, hey, this is what I do. I've got this patient. I think they would do well by having you just at least assess and figure out what's going on. So if you're within a hospital setting, it's a little bit easier because it's easier just to reach out. And usually a hospital setting will have a team of physical therapists that have a pelvic physical therapy team. So it would be great if you reached out and they reached out. What we would do then is we would do grand rounds or we would just do in-services or we do other things that say, this is what we do. This is how we can help your patient and vice versa. So if you're in that setting, that's a way to start. If you're not in that setting, these days, there are a lot more pelvic PTs around than there used to be. Where I am in North Carolina, it's awesome. It's, we're very, very rich with pelvic PTs. 
but not everybody's lucky doing that. So it may require reaching out, like I said, and talking to them and then having them come in and talk to your group or your group coming to talk to theirs. So that's reaching outside of your hospital setting to do that. And I've done that with other hospital settings. So although I worked for Duke, I did grand rounds and presentations for UNC. You know, I did them for other health organizations in Charlotte. And so I would go to other organizations. And right now I'm working on, so my book has been very helpful in reaching out to other organizations and going and talking to them or doing lab work with them or doing something that says, hey, We can teach you how to do a musculoskeletal assessment of the pelvic floor that gives you the answer without worrying about treating it, but just understanding what really is appropriate to say you should be in pelvic PT. Man, that would have been really helpful to learn in medical school, I'm going to be honest, to to do like a proper musculoskeletal assessment in the pelvis. Imagine how great that would be if we could at least get people to who they need to see. But like you said, I mean, the all the thoughts around this and the way we treat this has really changed in the past 15, 20 years. It has changed tremendously. Not fast enough for me, but it has changed uh. tremendously. Because <laughs> I just feel like, wow, you know, I it's so much more that we see, but we still need to work together as teams so much better than we do now. Definitely. And these are, like you said, these are really complex patients. They come to us and they often have a litany of problems. A lot of uh, a lot of them have been diagnosed with psychiatric issues as well. And like you said, they just want somebody who's going to listen to them and take them seriously. Unfortunately, both pelvic PT and interventional radiology are often seen as end-of-line therapies, but it's a really great opportunity to do some good. So for practicing interventional radiologists, what else would you want us to know about pelvic PT? So we touched a lot of points that I think are very, very important. And I'm glad you asked about, you know, reaching out and talking with each other, because I think if we do a better job of constantly talking with each other and interventional radiologists realize, oh, you know, there are so many different things from lymphedema to pain with sacs to urgency, that if I think interventional radiologists see that we treat that entire scope of issues, then it'll be much easier to understand why the referral should should occur, whether it's sooner or later, but that it should occur. So I think the big things that I'd want interventional radiologists to realize is all different bladder issues, all different colon issues, constipation, which is another kind of common thing that occurs, that that's another hallmark, right? Pain with sex is another hallmark. If the, when you're taking your information in for the patient, if there's room in the intake to include those questions, then I think you might discover sooner that there's a whole scope or a suite of issues that are going on. That's one end of it. The others, like you said, well, if we've got some more emotional issues, does that patient have a sexual abuse history or just an abuse history overall? Do they have other anxieties? Do they have things like migraine headaches? When we see a patient that has that kind of suite of issues, that often is that upregulated, that overactive pelvic floor patient that is going to have these problems. Even if you do wonderful work with all the procedures that you do, they may still have those problems because they have this suite of issues. I think if those are recognized earlier, we may be able to calm the system better earlier and get better effects from the procedures that you do. Absolutely. And there's nothing we like better than to make our procedures work better. I think, especially in treating pelvic venous patients, some some of the frustration I've encountered with my colleagues who don't like to treat it anymore is basically, well, 
it's a 50% shot of this person gets better or not. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you pick the right patients or you actually are treating the right problems, then I hope your odds are a little bit better than that. You have some really, really skilled interventional radiologists in the triangle too who are doing awesome nerve work. Have you had any experience interacting with those folks to do some of these very interesting nerve blocks? I have not had a chance with that. I think probably, you know, by the time I left Duke, it was coming up a little bit more. So unfortunately, I didn't have direct, you know, contact with that. I think that's amazing and it's awesome. And I think it improves the ability to treat the nerves, which get so irritated. Like like we were talking about before, I don't think we can separate these things out, right? The, the venous system and the nerves, especially in the pelvic floor area, everybody's so close together. And all these different subgroups in the pelvis, they just affect each other. We can't eliminate and just say, I'm going to treat a nerve or I'm going to treat a vein or I'm going to treat the muscle and expect 100% success. So I think it's great to hear that more is going on with that, that so that there's a greater success rate. The last thing I want to touch on, Ingrid, is your book. Could you just give us a little bit of a summary of your book and who it's intended for and then how we could probably use it to better our practice? Oh, yes, absolutely. So the name of the book is The Musculoskeletal Mystery, How to Solve Your Pelvic Floor Symptoms. I know that's a mouthful, but I called it The Musculoskeletal Mystery because people just don't realize how much the musculoskeletal system is a part of all these conditions in the pelvic area. And I say pelvic, it's really, you know, from they say belly button to knees, but I treat patients from nose to toes. It's whatever needs to be done to get that patient back on their feet again. So I wrote the book because I was frustrated that it was taking patients 5, 10, 30 years to walk through my door to be treated. And I'm sure as interventional radiologist, you can sympathize with that. You can say, wow, you know, we're, we're feeling this same issue. So part of it is because other practitioners don't really know what we do. And it becomes difficult to say, well, I can send you here because they're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z with you. And the other part is patients honestly don't know what to ask for. You know, they don't have experience with it and they don't want to talk about what's going on down there. You know, it's the, what I was taught not to even talk about that. Or as a woman, you know what? You've got menopause, you should have pain with sex. You should be leaking. You're pregnant, you should be leaking. These are the things that we're told from little on and it becomes a belief system that we can't do anything for ourselves, right? So that's so not true. That is the opposite, actually, of what really can be done. So my frustration led to the thought, and patients asked me over and over again, please write a book, please write a book. And I was so busy clinically that I was like, how in the world am I going to do that? Yeah. And Heather Florier from Desert Harvest came along and said, Ingrid, it just could you write the book? I'll help give you the infrastructure. Write the book. So I wrote the book during the pandemic. And, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, as well as a paper with OGS on how practitioners can do a musculoskeletal assessment effectively and determine that the musculoskeletal system is actually involved in these things. So the book itself. Oh, perfect. Can we link to that paper in our show notes, by the way? Yeah, yeah. I think if you're an OGS member, you can get right into it. Otherwise, I think you have to make sure that things have changed because their publication has changed a little bit. But I'll, I'll get the link sure. so that you can link to it. But the book itself actually describes how we do a pelvic floor assessment. So we start with the musculoskeletal system. What, what does that mean, right? So I wrote it so both practitioners and patients can equally understand 
what this means. So everybody's on the same page and everybody's using the same language. That was a big goal of mine. Once you understand the pelvic floor and then how it attaches to the core, not what people think the core is, right? So the true core, which is the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, yeah. all the abdominal muscles and the back and buttock muscles, right? That makes our, that's our house. And the pelvic floor is the foundation to our house. And if someone's going to pull the foundation out from your house, you can imagine your house can have problems, right? So I describe that in the book to make that connection. That's an awesome analogy. I love that. <laughs> I, I have a lot of analogies in the book because I want people like these pictures to really, I'm a very like picture oriented, I like visuals, right? So I did that in the book, lots and lots of visuals in the book. And then that's connected to the diagnosis. So why does the musculoskeletal system have anything to do with these diagnoses, right? Then I go from there is how do you find a practitioner? And then what happens in a pelvic floor assessment? And then what happens in a treatment? So it makes the treatment less scary for people. And I think if a practitioner reads those treatments, then they can say to their patient, well, if you go to pelvic PT, this is what's going to happen. This what what you'll go through and you'll learn and you'll discover about yourself and you'll learn how to help yourself. So the whole last section of the book is self-care. And when I was talking with one of the interventional radiologists at Duke um, and he saw the book, he's, he said, that's going to just change my practice. It's absolutely going to change awesome. my practice because now I know how to address this. Now I know how to talk to my patient. Now I know who belongs in pelvic PT. And that was so satisfying to me to say, wow, I just totally changed a practitioner's view of what this means and what they can do for their patient with this this knowledge. And the last end is just how to avoid Dr. Google. <laughs> oh my goodness, gosh. That's a, I mean, that's such an awesome resource that you developed. And just the fact that you wrote it during the pandemic too, kind of when things were nuts. Mad props to you, Ingrid. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Any last words of advice that you have for folks who are taking care of patients with pelvic venous disease? Yeah, so I think so many of the different points we just brought up leads to just in the very beginning, giving enough time to talk to the patient. And you don't have to spend a half an hour like we do, but sometimes recognizing those suites of issues in their record before you get to talking to them will already tell you a story. And I like that. I like the idea of a story. If your patient has a story, listen to the story because it can completely change how you address what you're going to do. And it may change. I think maybe I'll start this way first rather than do this first. And it can make a world of difference for the patients. So my idea is please, please just listen carefully to what your patient's saying, what their story is, and then use your great skills, your wonderful skills that people are just learning exist these days that I think can be so, so very helpful to so many patients that don't know about it yet, right? The same boat we're in with pelvic PT. Listen to their story. Definitely. Create that team. Really make the team that we were talking about. That could be sex therapy, acupuncturists. It could be massage therapists, OBGYN, dermatologists, GI. Like these are all my team. And I can't imagine treating these patients without that team. And I think interventional radiologists are a huge, huge part of that team. Awesome. Ingrid, thank you so much for being on the show today, and I look forward to learning more about your specialty. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 